You know, there's, I just, as we're praying that, I was just thinking about how often, you know, the Bible talks about, the, the, Peter talks about the, the, the sincere milk of the word, that's that we grow by. And Paul, or writer of Hebrews, talks about that around chapter, end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6. And he says, I wish you would mature because you could, that you could eat the meat of the word, but until now you can only eat the milk of the word. And as you know, as a child grows, they start just by drinking milk, mother's milk, or wherever it's, they make it now. Um, and, and they give, and then as they grow and mature, they can eat more substantial things. And, and I think sometimes we have the image that the meat of the word is deeper things that the milk of the Word is kind of the stuff that's on the surface, you know, but the meat of the Word is a really deep revelation. Stop and think of what meat is. The reason you can't give a two-month-old baby meat is why. They can't chew it, and even if they could break it up, you cut it up in little pieces, their digestive system is not matured enough yet to handle it. So the meat is something that requires maturity and strength to be able to handle and to process. But if you have a 17-year-old and all they're doing is drinking milk, something's wrong. They're not going to grow too much. As you get older, you need something that has greater nutritional value but also requires a stronger digestive system in order to be able to process it. So the meat of the Word are the more challenging things to receive the things that challenge us to grow where we may not want to grow. The milk of the Word is the stuff that makes us feel good. But there's some things we have to eat that don't taste good, but they're very good for us. And so, so that's really what we're into. We're, we're talking about uh, learning about worship, and we've gone in our foundational scripture, we're not going to turn there this morning, is in, is in John chapter 4 where the woman is coming up from Samaria, is coming up doing her normal everyday routine and she comes to draw water and there's a man sitting there who's obviously a Jewish male and he speaks to her and says, would you please give me a drink of water? And she says, it's kind of strange that you, how is it you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Because they didn't speak to each other. There was a racial issue there and they just didn't talk to each other. And, and, and the man answers back and says, if you knew who it was that asked you for water, you would ask of him, and he would giving you, give you living water that would become in you a fountain or a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. And because and, and, what this obviously is, is this is Jesus, this is God. And so what we've talked about is here's a woman who's coming in in a regular everyday routine and what's different this time is there's a man sitting there and he's God. The problem is she doesn't know that's who he is. And he's saying to her, if you recognize, if you knew the opportunity that you have right now, who it is that you're talking with, you would ask of me because I have things to give you beyond this water. I have living water that will satisfy your innermost needs forever if you would just ask of me. And she says, she, she begins to, so that whets her appetite, which is what God is doing here with us, wetting our appetite. And she said, well, sir, give me that water. And now he begins to talk to her about her family life. Now, what connection does that possibly have? Living water and her family life. Well, we're learning it does have a tremendous connection because after all, this is Jesus who's doing this now. And, and you understand he knows what he's doing. So he wants to give her the living water and where we're going to end up with this is he's going to talk to her about worship, but to get from the living water to the invitation to experiencing it, something has to happen in her. 
And so he begins to ask her a question. He says, well, well, ma'am, why don't you just go do this? Go, go call your husband. Now, he knew the answer. We're going to see in a moment he knew the answer. And she comes back to him and says, well, I don't have a husband, which is true as far as she went. But there was more to that truth. And so Jesus answers back to her and says, that's right, you don't have a husband, you've had five. Which tells you something about how successful in life she's been and in relationships. You've had five, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. In other words, you've had five failures, and you're living in sin. But notice he's not doing this to condemn her and to push her away. There's no fire coming down out of heaven. He's preparing her to receive the living water. He's preparing her for what they're going to talk about, which is worship. And we've looked in other passages. We've looked in Moses. We've looked in other stories, and we've seen that in order for people to have a true worship experience with God, which is coming into His presence every time we come to church. I mean, when you get up and you pray, you have this opportunity. But when we come collectively on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or any other time we come together, we have that same opportunity. There's someone waiting here to meet with us. There's someone waiting here to meet with us. And in most cases, we completely miss the opportunity. We either see him as a man, which is what she saw him as, or then she begins to say, well, sir, I perceive you're a prophet because you can tell me things about myself that I didn't tell you. Obviously, God has told you. So her understanding of who this is she's talking to is now beginning to increase. And that's what God wants to do with us. Because the one who wants to meet with us every time we come here is the one we just sang about. He's the creator of everything. He knows every need in your life right now even needs you to have that you don't know you have, that He knows you have. He knows what tomorrow's going to bring, not just in your life, but in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, your community and the nation we live in. He knows everything that's going to happen. He loves you more than you can begin to imagine, and He wants to do things in our life, but we don't come to Him and ask Him. We don't ever open the, really, truly open the door to allow Him to do in our lives what He wants to do. Why? Because we don't recognize the opportunity we have. We come here and we sing songs and we hear a nice message and, you know, maybe something good happens and we leave and we feel blessed. We're glad we came. But we had an opportunity to have an encounter with the living God. And every person I read in my Bible who has an encounter with the living God, a real encounter, they come away changed. They come away changed. There's issues in, in, in our society today. The only answer is an encounter with the living God. There's issues in churches today, even in this church, that are only going to happen. There are issues in some of your lives with our children and grandchildren and all family things that you can't make happen the way you want them to happen. And if you're a parent, you know what that's like. You want your kids to turn out a certain way. You want your grand... You know, we, and we try, you know, flipping this lever, turning this dial, saying the right thing, doing the right thing, acting this way. We try everything. It's not working. What happens? It's going to take an encounter with the living God. We can't make that happen. We've talked about that. We can come. There's a difference. We'll learn this probably down the line. There's a difference between... The Bible talks about thanksgiving, praise, and worship. There are three different things. They're not slow, fast songs and slow songs. <laughs> you can choose to give thanks to God anytime you want. 
You can choose to praise Him. That's initiated by us. But worship requires something He has to initiate. Because worship is a response to seeing who He is. And we can sing about who He is, and that helps. But it's when He opens our eyes, and we begin to get that... See, I read that scripture about the 24 elders for a purpose, because they could see who He was. And they didn't have to have a worship leader saying, now it's time to bow down. Now it's time to sing this song. It just poured out of them. I've read visions of people that have gone into heaven and walked around and, 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 and met angels, and, and then all of a sudden they would hear a music play, and they'd, everybody there would fall down on their face. I'd say, what's that all about? They couldn't help it. And it's not like they were obligated to it was a response because they could see who he is without any restriction, any limitation. And we come here so limited by our flesh, so limited by just the world that's around us that we've had to go through to get here. And waiting here is God, our Father, who paid the price he paid, not just so we can go to heaven, but so that he can have us here now. And the verse that really touches me in John 4 is when Jesus is talking about worship to her. He says, with her, he says, for my father longs for such worship. He longs for it. So every time we come in here, the creator of the universe, who knows everything and everyone that's ever lived, longs for you and me personally to come and open our hearts and worship him. He gets something out of that. There's something we can bring to him that deeply touches and moves him and satisfies his desire. And what we've learned is as we begin to do that, as that begins to be our motive and when we come, as that begins to be our focus when we're singing, as that begins to be the focus and what we're doing, what happens, the Bible says, is he begins to lean towards us. Leviticus 26. He begins to lean towards us. And I believe with all my heart, he wants to lean down, embrace us, kiss us. And boy, when God kisses you, it's not you get slobbered over. Something's going to happen. It has to. But we've learned we can't just flip a switch and make it happen. It requires preparation on our part. And we've gone back and we've looked at some of the preparation in the Old Testament of how they had to sanctify themselves and cleanse themselves outwardly. And it's not our outward cleansing, it's the inward cleansing because this worship is a spiritual worship. True worshipers who worship Him in spirit, in spirit and in truth. It's the condition of our heart that determines everything. And so we began to talk about what that means and we looked at the first thing has to do with the attitude we have towards His Word. Because you can't have one attitude towards God and another attitude towards His Word because He and His Word are the same. You can't have, you can't have a reverence for God and a disregard for His Word. And we saw in, in Isaiah 66, the first five verses, he says what he looks for. He looks for a, a contrite and humble heart, a heart that's broken, not beat down, but that's broken open, that's not full of pride. I can do this and I can do that and I bring this to God. It's a humble and a contrite heart. Amen. Jesus, Jesus said, come to me all you that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Learn of me and learn, Lord, learn what I'm like. For I am meek and humble in spirit. This is the Son of God who walked on water, raised the dead, 
spoke with the authority of God, the Father, the Creator of the universe, and the Word of God says, all things were made by Him and through Him and for Him. And He is humble. Not promote. If there's anybody that would have been entitled to promote Himself, it was Jesus. And He humbled Himself. And He said, if you want to rest, come learn of what I'm like. And the, Isaiah says, what the Father longs for is a humble and a contrite heart. And then he goes on to say, and one who trembles at my word. That doesn't mean afraid to pick it up. It means it has an authority to me. It has an authority in my life. I can't disregard it. I can't just say, oh yeah, that's what God says. That's what God says. And then last week we began to take the next step in this. We saw what he does, his word does say. The Old Testament has a whole bunch of things that we're supposed to do. In the New Testament, it's reduced to two things. And we saw that it's reduced to, Jesus said, two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your might, mind, and with all your mind, excuse me, with all your strength, soul, and all your mind. And, which is what we're talking about, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On, on these two commandments hang all the commandments, all the teachings of the law and the prophets. And we saw that Jesus said in John chapter 13, 34, and 35, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's an act of the will. And so we're seeing that we can't worship God because we went on and we looked in Matthew chapter uh, 22 and then Matthew 22 says, says, Jesus says, where he says this is all the laws and the prophets are summed up in those two commandments. And then we saw in Matthew 5 where Jesus said, here's what it means. If you're going to come and worship, bring your offering, which was their worship, to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, there's a broken relationship, put your offering down and go straighten that out first and then come. What we're seeing that the way we relate to each other, we're talking about Christians right now, but forget the world right now. What about Christians? The way we relate to each other has a direct effect on the degree to which we can come and worship. Oh, we can sing songs. We can sing songs with malice in our heart. We can sing songs with unforgiveness in our heart, but songs aren't worship. Worship comes out of the Proverbs, we've talked about this before, says guard your heart. Guard it with all diligence. Think about that. The warning is if you're going to be diligent about anything, make sure you're diligent about this. It doesn't say guard your money with all diligence. Good things to guard, to, guard, to guard your money. He doesn't say guard your property with all diligence. He says guard your heart with all diligence because it's out of your heart flow the issues of life. We're going to see that what Satan tries to do is get things sown into your heart. Because if he can sow things into your heart, he can leave you alone. And you can do his work for him even though you're a Christian. That's why Paul says in, in, in um, Ephesians 6, uh, starting in verse 10, he talks about spiritual warfare. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and, blo- against flesh and blood. So that person that's been giving you so much trouble, that's not the one you're really wrestling with. But their spirit's using that person to get at you. So that's what we were talking about. Last week we talked about the commandment to walk in love. 
And we're going to continue on that, but we're going to look today at this. We've looked at the commandment. We looked at what we're required to do. We ended up in 1 Corinthians 13 where we saw that in the Paul's, midst of Paul's teaching about, about the, how the gifts of the Spirit are operate, that he's teaching that the key is this, is if it's not motivated by love. In fact, whatever you do for God, if it's not motivated by love, in God's eyes it counts as nothing. Why? Because God is love. How can we represent Him? How can we worship Him if it's not coming out of love, when He is love. And that was the lesson of 1 Corinthians 13. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 1, because we're going to begin to look at what is at stake here. What's at stake in this walking in love? I mean, it's a commandment, so right there, that's enough. It ought to be enough that Jesus commanded us. But He goes on and gives us consequences to obeying it and to not obeying it. And we're going to look specifically in terms of what we're talking about, about worship. Acts chapter 1, of course, what's happened is Jesus has has been crucified. He's now been raised from the dead. He's walked among, on and off, among the disciples and among the people. He's appeared, it says, to over 500 people for about 40 days. And now he's gone out to a hill and he's been physically ascended into heaven. And while they're still looking up, Angels appear to them and says, why are you looking up? In other words, why are you longing for him? Go do what you're supposed to do, basically is what they're saying. So what do they do? They don't know what to do. They're leader. They've seen him crucified on a cross, which they were familiar with. Then they saw him come up out of the grave alive, and when he was alive, he could walk through walls. Nothing could restrain him physically. And now they've got renewed hope again. Wow, he's back. And he's back stronger than before. He's back more more miraculous than before. He just appears in rooms and disappears. I mean, this is wonderful. Here we go. And he calls us out to this hill. We're going to have this wonderful service. And he goes up. He didn't come back yet. And they're, you know, that's it. He's gone. They forgot the things he told them in John 14, 15, and 16 because they're caught up and their leader's just gone. I mean, that's, all they got left is each other. And they kind of look around at each other, and then they remember what he told them to do, which was to wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with the power that they're going to need that's going to come from on high. So what do they do? They go back in Jerusalem. And we're going to look in verse 14. Well, verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they entered, they went up to upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, goes through the list of all the ones that were there. Um, and they continued, verse 14, they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, that means asking, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. What I want you to see there is he's gone. They don't know what to do now. All they can remember is what he said to do is go and wait. And you know, isn't it hard to wait? I mean, come on. More than one of you know it's hard to wait. (laughs) It's hard to wait. I mean, we we were, you know, I was probably the first generation that was raised in the push-button era. 
where we're used to pushing buttons and getting things in instant response. Now it's just, I mean, it's amazing. Somebody raises a question, I don't know about, oh, just let me find out. You pull your phone out and you put Google it. Oh, it's this. And if, it, if it's slow, we get frustrated. So that's built in us, this expectation that we ought to get instant answers and instant results. You don't communicate with God through the internet. God's not a website. God does things on His time, and there's sometimes reasons we don't understand, and so there's just times... One of the things the church has lost... This generation is lost. Not just, I'm, I mean, my generation, let alone the rest of our, your generations, has lost the sense of waiting for things. Yeah. What they did is they were waiting on God. We had a wonderful prayer meeting again this last Tuesday. And one of our elders, Denny, came up to me at the end. He said, I really feel the Spirit of God's telling me, just, I don't know what you want to do with it, that we need to be patient. Because it's really only the second prayer meeting that we've had a large group gather together. And they waited. Moses, one of his times, I think, if I remember correctly, sat up on the mountain for seven days before God did anything. I knew that'd be popular. <laughs> we don't like to wait, but the, you can't make God do anything. So all you've got to do is wait. It's amazing what happens sometimes while we're waiting. We actually slow down. And you begin to see things. That's why fasting is an important thing to do because it slows your body down. Being able to get a, a, a time during the day when you're quiet and spend time just with God, just quiet. Just be quiet, still. It's amazing what that happens to develop that habit. And that's, but they had to do it because they didn't know what else to do. They didn't have a brochure that says, this is how you receive the Holy Ghost. They just had His word, wait here. They didn't even know what they're waiting for. Just wait here until you're endued with power from on high. What's that mean? They just they, so they didn't know what else to do. So they just but notice they waited with one accord. They were in agreement. There wasn't strife among them. There was a unity among them. What we're talking about today is is what the, the 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 Bible teaches that when we're in unity, we're creating an atmosphere where God can begin to move and do things. And so the very first thing He did for the church began with them being together in one accord and praying and seeking Him. Go over to chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. Some translations will say together. They were all with one accord in one place. And there suddenly came from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and sat upon each of one. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with one another in tongues. And the Spirit gave them utterance. This wasn't just a Holy Ghost meeting. This was the birth of the church. The birth of the church took place when they were together in one accord, when there was no strife and envy. Now, remember, if you study back, these disciples, they weren't always like that. There was some envy and jealousy among them. Remember James and John, their mother? They were called the sons of thunder. There was a reason for that. <laughs> it wasn't because they were patient. 
It wasn't because they were long-suffering. It was because they, wanted, they were men of action, and if they didn't see action, they made it happen. One point, Jesus goes into a village, and the people don't respond to him, and they want to call fire down out of heaven. I mean, they want to fry these people. And Jesus basically says, you know, I understand your passion, and that passion's good, but you've got the wrong spirit that's behind that, because that's not what my Father's will is to do. And so, so you've got, and, 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 they, and their mother comes to, to Jesus and said, Master, I have one request. When you get into heaven, your kingdom is established. I got two boys. Would you put one on the right and one on the left? Those are positions of exalted authority and, and respect. So she was asking that his, her sons be elevated over the rest of the disciples. Well, if you read on, the rest of the disciples got offended at that because they were vying for the same position. So his disciples are vying for position. You see in John, in John 13 where Jesus washes their feet, that's because they were all too proud to do it for themselves or for one another. So, they, they, you know, they're just like you and me. They're folks. They're people. You know, and they're trying to find their position. But something's happening to them. He's taken away all the, all the structure, all the things, and they've got no choice but to wait together because what's binding them together is they don't know what to do. What's binding them together is they know they're called to do something, they know something's going to happen, so they need each other. And I believe what's going to get rid of some of our disunity more than anything else is we're coming to a place in this nation where the church is we need each other. And we won't care, you know, what your, some of your doctrine is and what some of my doctrine is. We need each other. I'm starting to meet now with some of the pastors in the area where we have doctrinal differences, but we're developing relationships together relationship together came out of the 99 where we were working together for one purpose to reach souls to reach souls does that mean I change some of my doctrine no it doesn't but we go back to what's really important because the enemy will see in a minute why he wants disunity why he wants division so here we see again they're together in one accord and the church's birth I believe with all my heart that couldn't have happened if there was infighting going on if there was positioning and jockeying was going on. But everything had been taken away from them, and there was only they had left was each other. And so they were binding closer together. Let's look at some other examples of this. Let's go over to chapter to verse 46. Chapter 2. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And there were other things they were doing together. But they were in one accord. There was no division. There was no strife among them. And as a result, the church grew and it multiplied. And God was able to add to the church those who were being saved. Chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were being done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. 
There was unity among them. There were not divisions and strife and envy and jealousy and unforgiveness and this person did that to me and this person's in that position. I don't know why they've got that car. I don't know why this. There was none of that. In fact, they gave everything up to be together. But notice, signs and wonders were taking place. Look at verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So God was able to move and cause things to happen because there was unity. We don't have time to go back there this morning. If you go look at the opposite of this in Genesis 11, when the people on the earth were of such unity, they were building their own tower to reach into heaven. And God says, I've got to do something. Because he says in there, if I don't break this up, if I don't create disunity among them, nothing that they decide to do will be held back from them. The power of unity is incredible. I'm not a physicist, but what I understand is the laser that's changed so much of our surgery and so much of our life in so many ways which we may not fully understand is simply nothing more than taking random light waves and getting to flow in unison. Something like that. You've exhausted my knowledge of physics. But, <laughs> but it's unity. It's the light waves which in this room are just all over the place. It's taking them to flow in, or, or to, to, to flow in a unity together. There's tremendous power in that. So the church grew. It was birth. It grew because they created an atmosphere of unity They were bound together, cared for one another. Their differences didn't get in the way. There's no evidence here of strife or disagreement. Chapter 15. What's happened by now is the church has expanded among the Gentiles. And there's a conference in Jerusalem about whether the Gentiles have to be circumcised and go under the law. And it's been decided by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of James and the other elders that that's not necessary, that God is doing something new here. And that's what's so crucial in this chapter. What's being decided here is that this Christianity, what Christ created here, was not going to be a subsect of Judaism, but it was a fulfillment of Judaism. It was a replacement of it. And that was what was critical in the decision here. But look at this. Verse 24 says, Since we heard that some have went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul. So there's an answer coming to confusion. There's confusion occurring in some parts of the church other than in Jerusalem. And the council there come together and their leadership is of one accord. And as a result, they knew what to do and how to answer the problem and who to send out. Ever feel confused? Confusion is never of God. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, God's not the author of confusion. Confusion is when you don't know what the truth is. You've got some idea, but you're not sure which one it is. And Satan's the one that wants you in that place because when you're confused, you won't do anything. You're paralyzed. That's a lack of unity in your mind of thinking. 
knowing what the truth is and being committed and focused on that one truth. So the enemy wants to bring confusion in your thinking because it paralyzes you. In the same way he wants to bring confusion to the church because it paralyzes What's the truth here? I don't know what the truth here is. You hear rumors about this. Is this true? Is that true? Is this true? Is that true? He loves that, to create that. But see, when we bound together by love, most of those issues don't matter. When we're bound together by love and believe in one another, believe and love one another the way we're called, command to love one another, those issues don't matter. We're going to see that love is a protection. Fulfilling this commandment is a protection. All right. So unity is critical to God being able to move. Go to James chapter 3. The greatest proof of how critical it is is to see how our, what our enemy tries to do with it and why. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Notice that's meekness. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, or selfish ambition, in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. So envy, bitterness, strife, we're going to see a few more in a moment, that doesn't come down from God. Division does not come down from God. Well, where does it come from? This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Some translations call it a doctrine of demons. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. I'll speak to a moment of marriages. Do you understand what that says? When there's strife in your home, do you understand what you've done? You've opened the door... You've opened the door to the devil to bring in every evil thing. Isn't that what it says? When we go into strife, when we hold on to things, and there's strife, especially within a family or within a church family or within the family of Christ. We are opening a spiritual door for, according to James, confusion and every evil thing to come in. So we're reading our Bible, going to church, is like taking a broom and cleaning off the front porch, but we've knocked down the back wall and invited Satan to bring an 18-wheeler tractor truck up and pour out all this garbage in our house while we're on the front porch going to church and reading our Bible. This is why it's important not just to just read your Bible, but to do it. Not just to come to church, but to put in action what you hear. Every evil, every evil, Does that include sickness and disease? I believe it does. Therefore, how we handle divisions in our life, 
how we handle issues in our church with one another is critical. But so often we've taken this, this, this love commandment and kind of been aware of it. I know I'm supposed to do it. I know it's an ideal. No, it's a commandment, and God's commanded it to us in many ways for our protection and our blessing. Because I hope you know this. <laughs> I hope you realize God's smarter than you are, and He's smarter than I am. I hope you realize He knows things you don't know, and He knows things I don't know. Especially when it comes to spiritual things. Romans, Romans 8, verse 26 says, Sometimes we know not what to pray. Literally it says in the Greek, we, do, we know not the what to pray. Why? Because we can't see in the spirit realm what's going on. But God does. So when God says in His Word that when you have envy and strife in your life, when there's division in your life and you're holding things against one another, then you have opened a spiritual door. He sees something you and I don't see. I mean, you may lock your windows every night and make sure your doors are locked every night. Physically, you've got your house protected. Some of you have alarm systems. That's wonderful. You've got your physical house protected, but your spiritual house may be wide open with neon signs saying, here, right here. <laughs> and wondering why things aren't working. I've been praying and I don't see a result. That's why God, Jesus was dealing with this woman in her life because there are things she needed to get straight. First of all, by being honest with herself and honest with Him so that she could be prepared to come and worship Him. There are things that need to be right in our life. Or we're not going to be able to truly come. Oh, we can sing songs together. We can get goosebumps and feel sentiment. But that's not worship. That's not His physical presence here. So the first thing we're looking at is God can really only fully move and manifest Himself when there's a unity, an atmosphere of unity of heart and of purpose. Second thing we're going to look at, which we've just already kind of started, is obedience to this commandment is also a protection and a blessing. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. And there are others we could look at, like Deuteronomy 28. But it's kind of summarized here. Deuteronomy 7. Earlier, he's, this is a rehearsal of things God has told the people of Israel. Earlier, he's told them, look, you're a, you're a holy people, you're a chosen generation, I've chosen you, not because you are so wonderful, but because I'm faithful to the promise I made to your fathers, which was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He tells him to know that he's God and he's a faithful God that keeps his covenant. Then he tells him in verse 11, you're to keep the commandments and the statutes which I command you today to observe them. Starting in verse 12, we'll read, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. 
He will also bless the fruit of your womb. That's your children. Our obedience to him affects our children. The disobedience of the children of Israel affected their children. Because God's will was for their children to be born in the promised land. But because their parents disobeyed God's... Their children were born in the wilderness. And two others, Joshua and Caleb, who wanted to obey God, they were bound with the destiny of those that outvoted them. So the, the decisions of our life to obey God, to walk in love, don't just affect me. They affect my family and they affect this body here. You affect this body. I mean, obviously I do. I'm the pastor. If I really get off track, that's going to affect this. But, but it, we all affect each other because we're all part of a body that's assigned here. So don't ever think, well, I sit way in the back or I sit somewhere and nobody knows I'm here and I know you're part of this body. We affect one another. And we affect what God's able to do here. But there's benefits to this. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land and your grain. That's your work, what you do, what you put your hand to and your new wine, and your oil, and the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flock. Now, you may not be a farmer, you may not be a herdsman, you may not raise cattle, but your work will be blessed. I've experienced in some very difficult positions, working in law firms, the incredible favor of God. And I could tell you story after story. I don't know why they did certain things for me. But I do because it was the favor of God in my life. And I certainly am not perfect at this, but I've tried to endeavor to walk in this commandment. And there are times I've missed it and blown it, times I've just driven right through it. But it's been the commitment of my heart since I saw it. The favor of God in your life is far more precious than money. Far more precious than money. The favor of God in your life, that's what he's talking about. Blessing what you put your hands to. Not because you're so good at it. I was never that great at what I did. I was often in situations where way over my head, and I've shared back last year, I shared a story about that. And yet God caused it to work out. They thought I I was wonderful. I'm thinking, I know. The favor of God, the blessing on what you do gets better. In the land which he swore to your fathers to give you, verse 14, and you shall be blessed above all people, and there not be shall be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Look at verse 15, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness. Look what it says, the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you've known but it will lay on those who hate you and also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord God delivers over to you you'll have victory in your life you'll overcome the bondages that Satan has you in
Sometime read through chapter 28 because there's a more complete description of these blessings. The first 16 verses it is. But then starting with the next verse, it's all the things that happen if you don't keep the commandments. See, obedience is a protection. It's like going out in a terrible rainstorm with an umbrella and you don't bother to open the umbrella and you wonder why you got wet. Or you've got it open and you just walk out from underneath it and wonder, I don't know why I got wet. And the umbrella's over here and you're over here and you're soaking wet and you've got this perfectly strong, good umbrella over there, but you've got it over here. Well, anybody looking at duh, I mean, come on now. But spiritually, that's what we're doing. You just can't see it as clearly as you can some fool that's got their head out from underneath the umbrella. Go with me to Romans chapter 13. Verse 8. Owe no one anything to lo- except to love one. I'm not going to get into debt or anything like that. Talking about debt. That's a, we'll talk about that some other time maybe. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has what? Fulfilled the law. Now we just read what the law says. If you obey the law, if you obey the law, which is all those commandments, then this is what God's going to do. That these blessings are going to come on you. If you don't obey the law, here's what's going to happen. By the way, one of the blessings is God will remove sickness from your life. God will remove it. There are other places that say the same thing, but it's the clearest is right there. And the law was the Ten Commandments, and then they added about another 600 to it. So just to remember them all was almost impossible, let alone keep them all. But under the covenant that we're under, because Jesus said they're now summarized by two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second is like unto you, love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments hang on these two. And Paul here says in Romans, if you keep that commandment, then you fulfilled all the rest of them. Just let that sink in. Let's go on. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness or lie, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's saying there is if you walk in this love towards one another, then you've kept the law. If you've kept the law, you've got a right to go back to Deuteronomy 7. You've got a right to stand before God and say, I'm keeping the law. On the other hand, if we don't obey this commandment, we shouldn't be too shocked if we struggle with some of these things in our life. So there's clearly a connection in the Bible, but in God's eyes, between how we relate to one another. And whether we walk in love with one another and what God's able to do in our life. 
don't hear a lot about this nowadays. And clearly with what we're talking about now, not just whether there's blessing in my life or cursing in my life, but whether I can walk into the presence of God, whether we can come together and expect God to show up here when, if, there's, if there's strife going on in here. If we've got people that got to sit in one section because they're mad at somebody that sits in another section. Well, I can't talk to them. Well, if you can't talk to them, there's division in the body. If there's division in the body, there's a breach in the body, and there's an opening for Satan to come in. And it blocks the presence of God. Well, how do we apply this? We'll just begin this. We won't be able to finish this today. How do do we apply this in situations where there's conflicts? Because you do know conflicts will come because there's an enemy out there that's going to try to bring conflicts into our life. Well, what does the Word say? Let's go back to chapter 12, which, by the way, starts by saying that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It starts in verse 1 by saying, present your body a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't act like the world acts. Don't be pressured to act like the world acts. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We spent a good part of this year on Wednesday nights going through that verse and how that applies in our life and how to build that into our life. And now here's the practical out walking, out of, uh, walking of it out. Talks about how, and most of it's how we relate to one another. So let's look, let's start here just looking in verse, um, in verse 14. Gets off to a good start here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, we're not talking about somebody that, you know, happens to just pull in front of you getting on the highway. We're talking about somebody that persecutes you, that picks on you because you're a Christian. The Bible says elsewhere, all that desire to live righteously will get persecuted somewhere because you're going to stand up and be different. That's what we're learning on Wednesday nights. We're called to be different, not weird, different. We're not called to look like the world. We're not called to act like the world, especially in these situations. So he starts out by saying, when somebody persecutes you, bless them. Now these we're going to look at right now. All he's talking about here is that when somebody does something that comes against you, our humanness, which is what he's told us not to be, our humanness is to want to defend ourselves and to strike back to strike back and defend ourselves or at least assert ourselves in this situation. And you'll see all the things he tells us here not to do are basically to not protect myself and promote myself and not, not to defend myself. God will defend you. We're talking about maturing here. This is where the rubber hits the road. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Well, what's our flesh's instinct when somebody persecutes us is to get back at them. And what God's saying, no. Because remember, we're, not to, be, we're to, be, not to be conformed to the world, which means we're not to act on the outside like the world acts. What does the world do? Somebody gets, hits you, you hit them back. 
The Old Testament, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You do something to me, I'm going to do it back to you. The law of retribution, I'll teach them not to do it. And we have nice ways of dressing it up and sounding so spiritual. I'm going to pray for them. God, get them. (laughs) But we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, this is the process here. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set, that doesn't mean you've got to agree on everything, but it means caring about one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. In other words, don't, don't try to be lifting yourself by saying, you know, name droppers. You ever know a name dropper? Well, I know so-and-so, and I was at such-and-such's such church, and I was... Blah, 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 blah. What I'm trying to do is lift myself up by what people think of me, by who I, whose name I can say I've associated with. That's lifting myself up. That's lifting myself up, my reputation up, by trying to present myself at somebody else's level or whatever or in, everybody, in other people's eyes. And he says not to do that. The Bible says, in, I think it's 1 Peter, 2 Peter, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will exalt you and lift you up. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't be so impressed with what you know. No, it's all based on you. Look at this. Repay no one evil for evil. We're talking about walking in love. Repay who? No one. Evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, not everybody will let you do that. But to the extent it depends on you, live peaceably. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. That's what this is all about. Do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, put the wrath aside. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, do good to somebody who's done ill to you. First of all, what that will do in you is, is radical. It will get rid of the unforgiveness. It will get rid of the hurt when you begin to do good for somebody that's intentionally hurt you. They may throw it back in your face, but they can't change what's going on inside of you because every time you do that, you're beginning to act more and more like who you really are. You're beginning to act more and more like the Christ that lives born in you when you came to Christ. The more you begin to act like Him, the more real He becomes on the inside of you. And the more you begin to what he talks about in, in John 15, the more you begin to abide in his light, in his life. Later on he says, if you just love those that love you, what difference is from you from the world? The world does that. The difference comes in how we handle people that mistreat us, how we handle people that persecute us, how we handle people that talk bad about us. How we handle, because you see, when they do, we do that, that's what, Jesus, that's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to Jesus. What he's trying to teach us here is how to act the way he handled it. 
how to act the way he handled it. But we're talking about creating an atmosphere, preparation for the presence of God. It can't come where there's strife, not to this level that God wants to come. We've got to bring this to a close. Let me go over again to chapter 13. Well, let me finish this. Verse 20 says, If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Jesus did? He overcame the ultimate evil. First John says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. How did he do that? How did he do By doing better works? No. He destroyed the works of the evil one by doing the ultimate. By putting himself in the... That's why it says in, in Ephesians that if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They realized what was spiritually going on. See, Satan was trekked. He never could believe that God would give his life up for such as us. Couldn't enter his thinking that God, the Son of God, who was glorified in heaven, would condescend to come to earth and take on flesh. But he saw that happen. But he couldn't believe that God would give his life up for creatures such as you and me that Satan disdains and spits upon and looks down at. He couldn't imagine, didn't enter his computer, his thinking process. Otherwise, he never would have crucified Christ because it was by crucifying him that we got set free. It was by crucifying him that our sin got paid for and Satan's hold on our lives was broken. And he's the one that did it. Because he couldn't imagine that God would do that. So the ultimate evil was destroyed and overcome by the ultimate act of love and sacrificing good. So when someone persecutes us, talks bad about us, lies about us, and we don't fight back and argue back and, and, and get, get back at them, we begin to walk in the same goodness, the same truth, the same love that he walked in, then that force and that power of God's love begins to be released in that situation. Because that person you think is so bad, there's no way, they deserve to go to hell. Well, guess what? So did you and so did I. That person that you think, they're so evil, they're so deaf, God could reach them, but it may take the supreme act of love to do it. You know, this is familiar with the story of Nikki Cruz and David Wilkerson. Nikki Cruz says, if you, or did David Wilkerson says, if you cut me into little pieces, every little piece is going to cry out, I love you. And this gang leader couldn't handle that. He couldn't handle that kind of love. He couldn't handle that kind of love. It wasn't even a natural love. He broke through his hard walls. It pierced down into his heart. And that's the love that we carry inside of us. 
that this world so desperately needs and Satan wants to distract us with this issue and that issue and this issue. Every one of those issues is an opportunity to learn to walk in love and to be trained. It's easy to sit here and say, oh, wow, that's wonderful, that's true. It's out there on the job. It's at your family get-togethers. It's out in those situations when they have a way of just looking at you because they've known you your whole life. With that, looking at you with that tone of voice, you know, and all those buttons get pushed. But what's different now is the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, Romans 5, 5. If we'll begin to walk in that kind of love with one another and then begin with the world, we're creating an atmosphere in here we're creating, because God is that kind of love. And how can that kind of love come and settle in here and manifest himself if we've got envy and strife and jealousy going on among ourselves? Next week, we're going to look at it from a different point of view. Because this does not mean that we're doormats. It doesn't mean there's not times when you step out and you judge certain things. Jesus turned over money changers and he didn't do it peacefully there are other instances so next week we're going to begin to look at discerning all right there are some things the bible says we're to judge and there are some things the bible says we're not to judge what's the difference because if you have that understanding then you can have confidence to do one or the other let's pray Father, as we look at our own lives and maybe there's some issues in our life and relationships that have come to mind this morning as your word has been spoken and it's gotten into our hearts. Help us to settle on what we need to do. Help us to make decisions right now of what we need to do. Father, some of them may be very hard right now because they've gone on so long. But help us to see what's at stake. Our welfare, our health, our prosperity, our provision, and even more than that, what you want to do here. There's so much at stake, Father, by how we walk with one another, first of all. Father, this is something only the Holy Spirit can truly do in our lives. We come to you and admit that in some cases this morning we realize there's feuding and things that have gone on so long, I don't even know that I can let go of it, we may be saying to you. But we put it into your hands right now and ask you to help us. And we tell you that we're willing to change, but we need your help. We're willing to forgive, but we need your help. We're willing to let go of that that's happened to us. But we need your help. Meet us where we are as Jesus, you met that woman at the well. You met her right where she was. And you enabled her to face her life the way you saw it so that you could bring her to where you were calling her to go. May we hear that cry this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.